This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You uh, may or may not, as things have been going, been following what has been happening down at Hamilton City Hall over the last few days and what is looking like it may stretch into tomorrow. That is, we are in the end moments of the budget process where some obviously some difficult decisions have to be made because we have a city right now that has a lot of demands, a lot of people want stuff, a lot of people want things and services and buildings and all these other things, splash pads and on and on and on. But we don't have a lot of money. In fact, we we are way behind as far as money. We've talked about it on this show a number of times. We have an infrastructure deficit of something like $3.5 billion, which means that we we have work that needs to be done on our infrastructure, our roads, our buildings, our community centers, things like that, that will cost, if we were to do it all, that would cost $3.5 billion, which is money that doesn't exist in our kitty. We just don't have the money lying around. The city of Hamilton doesn't have that kind of money. And so you combine the demands that are on the city with the increases in salaries and benefits and things like that and the cost of living and the cost of things and the cost of materials and on and on and on. And you suddenly end up with a budget picture that is difficult. And that's probably a soft word. In fact, Councillor Matt Green, I was reading on, uh, someone tweeted out today that in the, in the discussions down at City Hall today that he was saying, you know, if, if this is rough, wait till 2018. It's not going to look a lot better. These are tough days. If you are a city councilor, these are the days, you know, we can mock them and we do at times. Everybody in the city does. We can poke fun at city councilors. We can do all that stuff. But these are the days that theoretically, these are the days that they're making their money. When you actually have to make difficult decisions, these are the days when city councilors earn their keep. And this is, these are the days when you can see which city councilors are, I think, this is, these are the times when you separate the, the wheat from the chaff. Honestly, I really do. I believe that it's, it's when difficult decisions have to be made that you find out who really is on top of their game. Maybe you disagree with me. Maybe you think there are other moments. But to me, being a city councilor, and I've never been one, so I'm, I'm not speaking from experience, but being a city councilor would be reasonably easy when your job, when you're doing the part of your job that involves going to the opening of a building or going to a dinner or going to whatever else. That part of being a city councillor, you have to be out there, you have to be visible. That's not that difficult for most of them. Every single person who's run or who is a city councillor had to run through an election. They are not shy about being in public. They're not scared of public speaking. They're not afraid of dealing with people. So that part of their job... I would think for every one of them, no problem. This part of their job, when you now have hard decisions to make that will tick some people off, no matter what you do, because you cannot, no matter how hard you try. And let me stop for one second again. I believe that the default position of every politician at every level of politics, from municipal up to federal, I believe that the default position is that in a utopian world, they would want to give every single person every single thing. That that only makes sense, right? For a politician, if you could, if money was no object, 
if we were living in magic land and you could give every voter exactly what that voter wanted. One voter wants a new rink. One voter wants better roads. One voter wants better bus service. One voter wants better senior centers. On and on and on. Of course you would do that. That would be the easiest thing in the world to be a politician. You're basically being Santa Claus is what you would want to be. But that's not reality. The reality is not that you have an endless bucket of money that you can just be throwing out there and give everything to everyone. Hard decisions have to be made. Difficult decisions have to be made. And that's why when the counselors are sitting around the table now, this is where they are making their money. And this is why when they're sitting around and there's so many, the money is so tight right now, this year in particular seems to be very difficult. Larry Deany, the former mayor of the city of Hamilton, joins us now. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks for doing this tonight. Well, Scott, my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, th- we were just talking about how, for councillors, this is the time of year, it seems to me, that they really make their money. When you have to sit around and make hard decisions that sometimes uh, are really hard, uh, this is what you're being paid for. But I'm wondering, is this year, un- from your perspective, and I know you're sitting at a safe distance, and you're probably very glad you're at a safe distance this year, <laughs> Is this a particularly difficult year, or is every year like this, and we just forget every year, and then the next time we go, no, this year is even worse than that. Is it really hard this year? No, it is really hard this year, and I'll tell you why. I, I can I cannot remember one year where we didn't have a tough budget to deal with, um, because there's always uh, more need than there is money. Uh, and so consequently, you've, as you've said, you've got hard choices to make, uh, but somehow you get through that and you come with uh, a program for the year of spending on the priorities that you think are good for the city and good for Hamiltonians. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, that includes uh, often some tax increases as well uh, and assessment increases, which uh, which never please people, but they're uh, necessary evils, if you will, to conduct the business on behalf of the people. But this year, it seems to me, was a particularly tough year, is a particularly tough year, because to meet some budget um, uh, targets that the council has set for itself, they've had to actually lay some people off. And that always is a tough, tough thing to do. Uh, that is all, always a tough, tough thing to do, because, in fact, you are you are. Uh, uh, disrupting the livelihood of people, of individuals that uh, have worked for the city in some cases for many years, uh, but uh, they're necessary to do in order to meet the budget, um, the budget targets that you've set. And of course, the vast majority of the budget goes towards people because right. delivering municipal services is a people business. So you have folks in each of the departments, and um, and if you really want to get at long-term savings, sustainable savings. It's always the uh, salary line that uh, that will allow you to do that. So that, to me, tells me that uh, this year was a really tough year for for not only the counselors who have to make the final decision, but for staff that have to put a a process in place to to then meet that target as well. Is there anything to the idea that part of why every year it seems to get a little harder and why it's been so hard this year is because for a number of years, councillors have put off some of these decisions hoping they would get better, and then eventually at some point, 
you've run out of time and you've run out of room and you say, no, we just, we have to make these hard decisions. The chickens have come home to roost in a sense. Well, you see, and, and that's the point. I recall speaking with the uh, city manager a few years ago uh, who indicated essentially, and these are not his words, these are my words, but, but the sentiment was certainly is that, that council had been making decisions around either zero percent budget increases or 0.7% less than 1% or 1% budget increases, um, um, essentially relying on reserves, money that you've salted away, money in, in uh, various accounts, and you're drawing on that money in order to deliver your programs. But you can only do that for so long until A, the reserves are depleted, uh, and B, the programs that are in place that you need those reserves in order to maintain those programs are still there and they need to be funded. So if you have this zero increase or this 1% increase that doesn't even meet the inflationary cycle, uh, that doesn't necessarily meet the collective agreement uh, obligations that you have, at some point you're going to have to catch up. And that means higher tax increases or deeper or deeper uh, cuts have to be made to the budget. And in fact, that's what council is doing now. They're, they're having to raise taxes. I don't think there's a final number yet, but uh, in the two or two point something range. And they have to also uh, cut budgets and cut services, including laying some people off. So, you know, the chickens have come home to roost. And sometimes it, um, I mean, the lesson there is that although it may be politically expedient uh, to say to the residents, look, uh, we're going to offer you a 0% tax increase or a 1% tax increase, especially around uh, election time, because it's always popular to do mm -hmm. that. It's not necessarily the best way of managing your resources going forward. Better to take the hit each year, a little higher hit each year rather than have to do what they've done now, which is having to lay people off. Every, almost every time, though, that I have come up with or used the metaphor, and I'm not alone in this, a lot of people have used this one, but every time almost that I've used the metaphor of, you know, council should run its business like a household. Every household has a budget. You have to live within your budget. And every, well, almost every time I say that, I am told, no, that's an unfair comparison. Why, If it's unfair, why is it unfair? <laughs> well... I'm not sure it's an accurate comparison, or maybe it is too accurate a comparison, because, uh, you know, I was just reading an article in one of the uh, financial papers indicating that Canadians are highly indebted right now. Mm -hmm. And so council is running uh, the council the way that uh, uh, we are running our households by leveraging debt. And, uh, and that's not necessarily the right thing to do, uh, because debt costs you. At the end of the day, not only do you have to uh, repay the debt, but you have to pay the interest under that, which means you don't uh, have that money available to, for the programs that you need as well. But the other side of it, of course, is this, that, um, you know, we have, uh, I, you know, there, there were five in my house. Now, now the kids are gone and they have their own uh, issues and uh, finances, but there were five of us. There was my wife, myself, my three kids. I put each of the three kids through university. We had to clothe them. We had to entertain them. We had to make sure that they were in activities. We had to have a roof over their heads, food on the table. We you know the stuff that, that, that parents will do for their families. And so we budgeted for that. My wife and I were fortunate. We had good jobs. And we were able to, to sort of 
do what we needed to do. But the 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 uh, the the exercise was relatively uncomplicated. One family, a couple of decision makers, along with some children, and away you march. An organization like a government, whether it be a city, small or large, quite frankly, but in our case, a fairly large city by Canadian standards, uh, or whether you're a province or you're a federal government, it's multifaceted with pressures coming at you from all sorts of directions. And so, and, and, and you're offering services. And then there's a political calculation as well, which says, I want to be able to improve the quality of life for my residents. And what does that mean? I want to build the parks. I want to build the arenas. I want to build the pools. I want to build good traffic. I want to make sure that, you know, the garbage is picked up, that the park, you know, the grass is cut, that the snow is plowed in the wintertime. And all of these services to make their life better, but to also make me look good so that I can get reelected. Yeah. And, and all of those factors come together, and they're just real. You know, they're, they're real. And if you think that politicians aren't concerned about getting reelected, then you really don't understand our political system. <laughs> and they, they are real functions, and they're real pressures that people feel. But at the end of it, you want to do a good job as well. And I remember when I was in the mayor's chair that councillors came to me and they said, look, I, this is what I need for my ward. This is what I need for my neighborhood. You know, we haven't had a new, whether it's a park or arena or whatever, and we need to do that. And so you try to work that into the program. And all of that puts pressure on the budget. And then the moment you, you make a decision to improve an aspect of program, you got to have staff that you either have to hire or you have to uh, include in the equation so that you can effectively run the programs that you have to. LRT is a perfect example, right? We're having this big debate about uh, LRT in the city, and we've been given a billion dollars, which sounds like a lot of money. It is a lot of money from the province. But all of a sudden, there's a staff infrastructure that you need to make sure that that program is carried out. And there will be a staff infrastructure that you need afterwards to make sure that the LRT runs smoothly going forward. All of that costs money. And so to say that you can run a family in the same way that you can run a, uh, a, uh, uh, a municipality, uh, I mean, the scale of... of uh, the magnitude of scale is totally, totally different. Former Mayor Larry Deany, I really appreciate the time today. I know you're at an event, and I appreciate you stepping out. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you, and I'm sorry I almost missed the call, but I'm glad I, I did. That is uh, former Mayor Larry Deany. Look, it is a, it is very difficult, and I, again, I'm not mocking councillors. This, this is the time when you can judge them. This is the time when they earn their keep, and they show whether they're doing a good job or a bad job. And let me give you one way that I would judge. You don't have to use this method, but this is one way I would judge whether they're doing a good job or a bad job. Are they willing to stand up and make hard decisions that sometimes, not always, you don't want them to be a turncoat and turn on the people in their ward, but are they willing sometimes to make hard decisions that would actually cost them some political capital, possibly some votes, understanding that it's for the betterment of the city. That's a tough thing, and I'm not saying every time. But if a councillor will will not cut anything in his or her ward or in his or her area and insists on everyone else cutting, well, maybe some of the people in their ward are going to say, oh, great, he or she is fighting for us. That's not realistic. 
there is pain to be felt everywhere in this one. To me, if I'm looking at the counselors, I'm looking saying, who is fighting for what they really need and who is willing to be able to give a little bit here and there? That, that to me, is how I'm judging the counselors on what they're doing in the, in the negotiations right now for the budget. I don't want all the counselors around the table refusing to relent on anything. That's not helpful. And I don't want them giving everything up. That's not helpful either. Go back. When the stories are out, when you're following this stuff, read up, see who's voting for what, see who's supporting what, and make a decision if you think the person is doing the job that they were sent there to do. That's how you judge them. Willingness to cut sometimes when it's needed. Willingness to fight for what they need sometimes when it's needed. Not all one way, not all the other. Not a pushover, not an unrelenting brick wall that will not participate in the process. But... Now, right now, certainly, certainly not someone who is asking for endless more spending. Not, not with the finances the way we are right now. That, to me, would be a failing grade immediately. If you're someone who insists on that we need to spend way, 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 way more money and we need to have every single service available at all times, that's not going to work. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. If you've ever, and I haven't, thankfully, I'm, I'm blessed that way, but if you've ever been through a contentious divorce or a nasty child custody battle, you, I'm sure, can understand how cutthroat and just dirt down and dirty the family law world can be. And that's just emotionally. We're not even talking yet about the costs, although we're going to get there. There was a column in the National Post this week, Christy Blatchford, who's great, uh, wrote this. How is it that these courts remain the expensive, convoluted, soul-crushing places they've become? And how is it that the players have allowed it to become normalized? It's a great series of questions right there. For anyone who's been through it, I am sure they've asked that very thing themselves. One of the people that she quoted in her column was a lawyer out of Toronto. He's a lawyer. He is a legal educator. He has studied this. His name is Omar Haredi, and he joins me now. Uh, Omar, thanks for doing this tonight. Scott, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. L- let's get right to that. When Christie describes that in the courts, is it really that bad for those who are in it? I think, unfortunately, I have to say that for the vast majority of people in family courts, it is that bad, especially if there is contentious uh, issues at stake, and if you have the wrong kind of lawyer, I think it just—it's the wrong recipe for the wrong kind of disasters. And and as a lawyer, I can say that we see members of the public whose lives are completely destroyed from family law proceedings, and it doesn't have to be that way. All right. So the common, and, and again, I have not been through this, and I'm very thankful, but I know enough people who have, and they've told me, and I've sort of put together this mixed bag amalgam of their stories. It kind of goes like this: You've got the two combatants. And by the time they get to the court proceeding, they hate each other so much that they ref- they don't really don't want to back down from each other. But at a certain point, so they start fighting it, and at a certain point, they realize now they're in so deep. They've paid so money, so much money now into fighting this that if they quit now and accept a settlement, well, now they've just thrown all their money away. So they have to keep. It's like a gambler. You have to keep pulling on the slot machine because you just can't quit because you now would have cost yourself so much money for no apparent reason. And eventually you just keep fighting until everybody has nothing left. I mean, is that reasonably close to a lot of these scenarios? It's, it's pretty reasonable. I think the important thing to emphasize, though, is that the vast majority of family law disputes don't even go to court. And so those are the smart people 
if you will, those are the lucky people because if someone else that you're in a relationship with drags you to court, you have no choice but to respond. So the smart people sort this out with the help of lawyers, but they sort it out outside of court through negotiations, uh, reviewing documents, and figuring out what's reasonable, and they can keep all the nasty emotions out of it. Okay, but in the in the piece that um, that Christy wrote, you were quoted saying that 57% of people in family court are representing themselves because they've already run out of cash from paying their lawyers. That's true. So that's the problem is that once you hire a lawyer, uh, we now know unless you're very, very, very rich or extremely poor, so under $20,000 a year, uh, you're not going to get a lawyer. So you're either going to have legal aid if you're very, very, very poor, or you have to be exceedingly rich, at least uh, six figures or more, uh, in order for the family law system. So you get to start out, you get to say some really, really nasty things, which you probably shouldn't say because it doesn't make a difference in law, but you get to say it. Uh, Probably have a lawyer who's not very good telling you to say it. And you go along, and before you even actually accomplish anything, before you even have a judge giving you an order and, and resolving anything, uh, the majority of the middle-class Canadians are running out of money, and then they're stuck in these proceedings without a lawyer, without any money, and as you described, Scott, a really, really nasty situation where their uh, ex-partner doesn't even want to talk to them. Right, and now you've, you, you're, you're even madder now because you are blaming that person for costing you all the money you have. You're blaming that person if they're the one who dragged you there. But, you know, I I think this is where I'm trying to, as a lawyer, say we need to rethink the way we do everything. So part of the blame then turns on lawyers. And despite our bad reputation, the vast majority of us are very well-intentioned. We do want to help the public. We're not allowed to lie, or at least we're not supposed to. Uh, But we do know there's lawyers, um, and it happens in the family law bar, who act inappropriately and egg their clients on and and promote this type of conflict because sometimes it uh, lines their pockets a little bit more. So I think the the words of advice I would have for anyone who's going to go through this is be reasonable and think about, do you want to start your life, your new life, if you're going through a divorce, taking that money and maybe buying a new house and putting something away for the kids, or do you just want to give it all away to the lawyer? Because, I mean, it helps us out. You know, thank you very much for all that extra money. But it's not really what's helping out the public. And this is the problem that we have in our courts today is it's just really not helping the public in the problems that they have. Omar, give me an idea, because again, for people who have never been through this, those who have, uh, we're, we're preaching to the choir on this one, but those who haven't, if I was to get into a family court situation for a divorce and a nasty divorce and a child custody, and I got the whole package coming together, what if it drags out for a while, what kind of money are we talking about now that it could run? It, it does vary. Uh, again, it could cost you as little as $5,000 if you avoid the whole situation, right? And so we're talking about once you get into court, uh, I would say minimum thirty dollars to $50,000. And if it drags on, you're getting into $100,000, $200,000. There are some cases which go well beyond that. We've seen $500,000 of legal fees alone. So just think about that, giving all that money to a lawyer. And the other side is doing the same thing. So, you know, throwing away basically your life and your kid's life, and maybe even your grandkid's life, because that's money that could have been invested to all of them. All right. And you mentioned a moment ago, and this is kind of what the, I guess, what the challenge is. And I don't want to, I'm not going to take a gratuitous shot at lawyers right now, A, because you were good enough to come on, and B, because my dad was a lawyer, so I would get trouble back home someday (laughs) if I I do that. But it seems to me that the challenge here is that the system is set up that it is not in a lawyer's financial best interest to encourage you to settle. That may be the right thing to do, 
that may be the ethical thing to do, but that is certainly not allowing them to pay their bills and to make their money. So I'm wondering, I mean, from your experience, how many, what percentage of lawyers immediately say, no, no, settle. And how many say, you you know what, we probably should file a few things and drag this out for a little bit and make a little money and then we'll figure it out. Yeah, I can't think of any family litigators. So those are the people who actually just exclusively do the family court stuff who would promote settlement up front. Um, there's, there's very, very few that would. That has to come from the public. And the problem is when you're going through uh, an emotional breakup, you're going through a divorce, uh, people aren't thinking about that. And they think about Hollywood, they think of the movies, and they want someone who is an angry, aggressive litigator. But that's exactly the opposite of what they want, even in court. So let's say you do have to go to court. Let's say there's a legitimate reason for doing it. Maybe there's some domestic violence there. You still don't want an aggressive, angry litigator. You want a problem solver. You want someone who's going to say, this is the best way to get to, to, to your plan B, to get to your new life, and let me figure out how we can do that. But don't you, as a, as a member of the bar, when you are called to the bar of the Law Society of Upper Canada, do you not have to take an oath at your graduation or when you're doing that that says, I am go- my job, my purpose is solely to serve the betterment of my client? Well, that's a common misconception. So okay, all right. We do have to serve our, our clients' interests, but we have a competing duty, and that duty is to the legal system and to ensure that the public perceives the legal system in a positive way. So that means we're supposed to conduct ourselves in a positive way as well. And, and, and we're unfortunately not seeing that because, as you've mentioned, there are lawyers who get away with this type of stuff, and they're never really held accountable because as soon as things get nasty enough or people run out of money, they dump the lawyer. They have no other choice. So how then... Do we fix this? Because I know you've been outspoken. You have been someone who has actually been standing there saying this thing has to change. How do we do that? How do we do it, though? There are so many changes that we could get through, Scott. I think part of it is going to be that we'll likely see, or hopefully we see see in our lifetime, some of these family proceedings going to more of uh, an arbitration or more of a tribunal-style proceeding. So instead of going to court, it'll be more like landlord-tenant board. Uh, where you can discuss parenting schedules and it doesn't have to be everyone all heated up and they don't have to have lawyers, they can sort it out themselves. So that's part of it. Uh, there's other types of reforms where legal aid can be perhaps scaled back and, and only used where it needs to be used because we know in some instances it's actually being used to fuel the conflict. Uh, so we have some cases where, like I said, one side will actually have legal aid because they're poor enough to have it, the other side isn't poor enough, and they get dragged through these very, very expensive proceedings and they can't afford it to begin with. Um, and then that we can also look at other types of reforms, such as when it comes to kids, saying that, you know what, it shouldn't be about fighting over the kid to begin with. Both mothers and fathers have a place in children's lives, and, and that should be the starting point. So that would be what we call a presumption of joint custody. Uh, so men and women, we're all for equal gender, we're all for equal pay, we, we all want equality in all other aspects of our life. Why are we not doing that when it comes to parenting as well? And I, I think we need to move to that not only as a society when we're raising kids, but also when it comes to the family breakdown in terms of the expectations, but also the responsibilities between the two parents. And if I was to go into criminal court, not for a family matter, but if I was charged with a crime and I walk into criminal court and I plead guilty, often there will be some benefit to me as far as sentencing because I haven't dragged the court through the time and the money and everything else. There will often be a somewhat lesser sentence to me if I were to do that. Is there anything in the family law situation that says, if you walk in here and if you offer to settle in front of the judge or even before then, there is a betterment for you to do that, even if your other half says, no, I want to fight this thing through. Is there any advantage to me to doing that? 
There are some newer developments in the family law. Um, it's not necessarily settlement-oriented. It can be. You can provide a formal offer to settle. So you can say to the judge, we're trying to be reasonable. This is our position. We're trying to give them half of everything or, or an equal or fair uh, portion of everything, whatever that everything might be. And if the judge agrees, that can have some very significant consequences down the road for the other party. So that's, that's one of the measures that you can do. But that's still a very, very expensive proposition to get through all of that process. Right, because even if even if I walk in there on day one and say, listen, I want to be reasonable, I want to settle this. If my spouse who is divorcing me and wanting the kids decides she or he wants to fight this thing tooth and nail, I really, I'm kind of stuck in that, am I not? You're stuck. This is part of the problem is that you are stuck. Uh, we also have what's called summary judgment motions, which are relatively new in family law, so just a few years now, and they're what we call a mini trial. So let's say there really isn't anything to fight over. Pretty much everything has been resolved. You can just take it to this mini trial called a summary judgment motion and get the whole thing kicked out. So that's actually growing in use. It's, like I said, new in Ontario, and, and it's growing in use. And so more and more lawyers, at least the ones who are saying, look, this is your best option to get out of this ugly mess, they're relying on that mechanism. Do judges ever intercede and say, listen, there is nothing here. Just settle this and be done with it. Do they ever get that involved or are they, are they basically required to be in the background just saying, no, no, you do it and I'll just be here to decide what happens? You know what, Scott, every single day in, in Ontario, at least, every single day there are judges in every court, I can say that, in Ontario that are telling the parties exactly that. They, say, they shake their heads and the judges, their hands are tied, right? They're stuck with the parties that come to court as well. And they say, you can sort this out. You, we shouldn't be fighting over what uh, Billy is having for dinner when, when they're at mom's house. Uh, or conversely, whether or not he should be wearing jeans or shorts. I mean, <laughs> live and let be. This is just unnecessary. So uh, the judges are trying to push for that. It's just their hands are tied and they only have so much power. Paradoxically, the judges don't have enough power to actually put an end to these things. Last thing, we got to go, but let me ask you one more thing. As I say, and I want to make this very clear because you have been someone who has publicly been arguing for changes and I commend you for that because I, I mean, clearly that is needed. Let me say, for example, we're in utopia land now and you, Omar, are now Lord and master of all legal creation and you can change the system. What would be the first thing you would do to try and make this work if you could sweep your hand and make any big change? I say this as a lawyer, obviously, and I say the first thing I would do was make sure that the parties didn't speak to a lawyer first. We're going to need lawyers so you understand your legal rights, but you probably need to talk to a sociologist, a psychologist, uh, someone who is trained in some other type of science who can help counsel the parties, diffuse the emotions, and sort out, like I said, what's going to be the next stage in their life. A lawyer isn't going to help you do that, or is not going to help you do that as well as some of those other professionals. And so I think it's us simply recognizing that we have our place in our role, it's not necessarily on the front line. Omar Ha Radai, you can read uh, what Christy wrote, Christy Blashford of the National Post wrote about him. It's still on the website there. It's a really interesting piece. It's kind of depressing, quite honestly. But um, Omar, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. If you have been through something like this, and I look, I, I bet you that there are 20% would 20% be too high? What's the divorce rate in this country now still? At one time, it was close to 50%. I, I'm saying at a low estimate, 20% of the people listening right now have probably ended up in family court for a divorce and, and or for child custody battles. And I bet you that of that 20%, and I could be very low on that one, it's probably a lot higher than that, I bet you that a fair number 
look at that system right now and say, man, did that ever just clean me out? I, by the time I was done, not only emotionally was I spent, but I had used up basically all the money I had just to fight. And in the end, what did I win? And you know, I was talking to someone, a, a friend of mine a while ago, and that was basically the comment. Even at the end, if you win, you look back and you go, okay, wait a second. What did I just spend and what did I actually win? And could we not have resolved this months ago, years ago, tens of thousands of dollars ago without having to go through us. And you know what the thing is that Omar just said though, that is the truly disturbing part of this whole situation? Because I really believe, I really believe that not everybody who gets into these situations is either out of control mad or a wingnut or somehow masochistic and wants to drain their bank account. The really scary thing that he pointed out there is that if you, even if you are sensible, if you are reasonable, if you say, look, we can settle this. We don't have to go through and spend all of our money. But if your spouse, who you're now apart from, decides they are going to fight this thing right to the end, there is not much you can do about it. You can either roll over and give them everything they ask for, or you can fight it. There's got to be a better system, doesn't there? Now, I mean, if you can have two reasonable people, the system can work. But if you have one of the people who's not reasonable, it's a tough, tough, tough system. And it's a little depressing, i got to be honest with you, when you read these stories and you hear him. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The Hamilton Bulldogs, who will be playing a playoff game tomorrow night for the first time in what seems like forever, because it kind of has been forever. The last game that they played, the last playoff game, I believe, that the Hamilton Bulldogs played, I can't even remember, 2011, I think? Randy Cunnyworth, I believe, was the head coach. They were playing down in Houston. They lost in Game 7. And then Randy Cunnyworth left as head coach, left as head coach, and Clem Jodouin came in, and he didn't make the playoffs. And then Sylvain Lefebvre came in, and they were still the AHL team, and they missed the playoffs for three straight years. And then they became an OHL team last year, and they missed the playoffs. And this year, they are in the playoffs. There is playoff hockey in Hamilton again. The, the clouds have parted. The skies have opened. The heavenly host is singing, It is all good. And they will be, they're on the road this weekend, Friday and Sunday. They'll be at home playing at First Ontario Centre for the first time in a long, long time this week coming up. Steve Steos is the president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, he is the guy who built this team. So, Steve, you get a pat on the back for this one. You finally got this city back some playoff hockey. Yeah, we're extremely excited <laughs> about it. I mean, I can't, uh, you know, we... Uh, we, I can't take uh, all the credit. I mean, obviously our players have done an amazing job in, in a year of uh, what I would call a transition, uh, you know, from not just the style of play, but uh, certainly uh, kind of the level of accountability and expectations that we put on them. So, um, but we're very excited. I mean, I heard you're, you're talking about the, uh, you know, the play, playoffs are the best time of the year. I think every hockey fan knows that. Uh, so we're extremely excited and uh get, uh, you know, uh, excited for our fans to be able to watch some playoff hockey again. Do you remember, now, you, I mean, f- most people know that you played in the NHL. I think it was 1,001 games, if I'm right, in the NHL. Uh, it's an easy number to remember. So, um, but do you remember your first OHL playoff game? Uh, <laughs> I'm that old. Uh, it's so far gone that I don't remember. I do remember 
uh, plenty of the series that I played in, uh, no doubt. I was, uh, you know, with, with the Niagara Falls Thunder, we met the, that very powerful Sioux Greyhounds team that <clears throat> won an OHL championship and went to a, a Memorial Cup. Um, you know, so I do remember it. The intensity, it was the first taste for me. You come out of minor hockey, uh, you know, and the first taste of what playoff hockey is all about. And, uh, you know, our players are excited. But it's just a different, it's a completely different feeling. Uh, you, you know, you're going against a team that you gotta, you gotta beat, you prepare for them, you know them, uh, you get to, uh, uh, build up some animosity and, uh, try and persevere through it. So playoff time is a great time, but I do remember some of the playoff series in junior hockey and they were, they were a lot of fun. How did playoff hockey in junior, honestly, before we get to the Bulldogs for this year, how did playoff hockey in junior differ from playoff hockey in the NHL? Uh, I don't know if there's much of a difference. I mean, the intensity is completely ramped up. Um, you know, there's matchups. You know, as a defenseman, you know, you, you, you know, myself and my my partner would get a matchup, and, and that was that was exciting. Like you go against the line, you need to shut them down. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of there's similarities, obviously, uh, from OHL playoff hockey to NHL playoff hockey. It's a it's the fact that you're going up against one team and the best team over seven games wins. So what do you expect this year from the Bulldogs? I mean, getting in at the start of the year, I think that probably was the, I'm guessing that was the main goal. Let's make sure we get into the playoffs this year. But now that you're there, what do you expect? Um, well, we, we expect, you know, to, to do very well. We, you know, we always put high expectations on our, on our, uh, on ourselves and, our players feel the same way. I mean, there's a there's a great sense of confidence with our group and uh, a, a real sense of w- wanting to prove themselves. That's the the one sense that I've got over this week um, because uh, you know they they didn't get a chance to play playoff hockey last year. Um, but as far as expectations for me, you know, in building this group, I, I want them to experience it. I want them to feel it, and I want to, them to embrace it. And uh, who knows? I mean, I don't want to put any undue pressure on this group. I feel that once they get in there, uh, they're going to compete hard and, and do us proud. This is a league, though, that generally rewards teams that have older players. And I mean, there's only so many overage guys you can have, but older teams generally do better in this league. It just it works that way. So is this team, in your mind, is this playoff run that they're going into now about getting experience and getting a taste of it and getting a feel for next year, that next year is their time? Or do you really look at it and say, you know what, no, I, I completely expect that this realistically could be a year we make a run right to the final. It's a, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would never want to doubt this group. You know, I think we've seen at our top end, our game has been uh, elite and as good as anybody in the league, especially on the Eastern Conference. So um, we've, this group has proven that they could play uh, at, a high, at a real high level. I think when you're building a team, you know, you, you, you need to be patient. Um, the idea of getting into the playoffs this year certainly uh, was mandatory for me. And, uh, uh, but at the same time, we didn't, we didn't risk the, uh, making the team an older team where our young guys couldn't get this experience and get the experience to get us into the playoffs and be able to play a key role in situations in these playoffs as well. So there's a lot that goes into this. But as far as expectations, I guess you're right. I mean, Older teams tend to have more success, um, but you know we have a veteran goaltender in Dawson Cardi, um, you know, and we have some strong overages with Michael Cramarosa 
and Nikki Teddy, and then a strong group underneath them. So we have a well-balanced attack as far as age goes, and uh, you know we're we're looking forward to seeing what they can do. I think there's a little bit of unknown, and that's what makes it really exciting. I think there's a lot of unknown. I mean, how many guys on your team have actually played in an OHL playoff game? There can't be that many. Yeah, there's there's not. But how great is it that you know these you know even our younger guys have had success in minor hockey, the Stroms and the End Whistles, uh, you know, uh, and the young guys in it, Riley Webb as well. Uh, you know, Connor Roberts getting his first taste of playoff hockey. It's it's great for our younger guys, but certainly we have enough strong leadership here that uh, they 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 feel a sense of. Uh, uh, you know uh, that they're going to be able to do something special, and uh, I, I would I would only encourage that from this group because again they've shown that they can play at a high level, and going into the playoffs, I expect that uh, that's what they're going to be able to do. You mentioned a couple of the guys, uh, Matt Strom and Mackenzie Entwistle, uh, are two of the guys who are up who are eligible for the NHL draft that's coming up in a couple months. Uh, from your perspective, how closely? Do you follow the rumblings about where these guys might go? And the reason I ask, I know because you're rooting for them to do well, but also if the Hamilton Bulldogs produce a bunch of first-round players, that looks great on the team, and that's a great sales tool to other kids who have been drafted who might be deciding whether to come because you can say, look, we've turned players into NHL draft picks. Is it How important is it for you, not just on a personal level for these kids, but from a team and a franchise perspective to have success in the NHL draft? Well, I think it's all tied in. First of all, from a personal level, there's nothing that we'd be more proud of as an organization to be able to have players drafted into the National Hockey League and help them progress. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, and from a, from a team perspective, sure. I mean, we the whole idea of building this thing up, Scott, is, is to take steps in the right direction. And I think our group has shown great progress that way. Uh, we're going from where, you know, we came from the team comes from Belleville and there's zero players drafted in the National Hockey League. Uh, the last year there was one with Cole Candela and this year we're, we're going to have more than that. So we want to continue to progress as an organization. I do think that the, uh, the coaching staff deserves a great deal of credit for, uh, not only, you know, in a transition year, it's difficult from going from one style of play to another, but also just the environment as well. So, We've been able to take great strides forward, and that's why we see progress in our players, and that's why we see um, the ability for our, our younger players to elevate their play. They're having the opportunity to play in a certain style where National Hockey League teams can evaluate them, see their progress, see how, how they handle uh, certain situations. So um, I think it's just progress right across the board. And you know, the NHL draft is one thing we always <clears throat> we tell our players that that will just take care of itself in due time if we do the right things on a day-to-day basis. So our coaches uh, holding them accountable to that has only helped them progress. Let me just jump around to a couple more things while we have you, because we don't get to do this all that often. Um, last year, you guys were 10th, right in the middle in the league in attendance. I think it was about 3,800 fans a game. This year you're up by about 300, but you've jumped up to 7th. How do you keep that how do you keep the team on that track? Because I know, again, your job is to build the team on the ice, but you're also the president of the team. You also want to build the team in the community and make sure that attendance keeps building. How do you do that? How do you keep things pointed in that direction? Uh, just work, We work at it every day, you know, and I've said this a number of times. I evaluate myself uh, in our group, not just on the ice and off the ice, every day. Um, you know, it's about doing the right thing every day and putting in the work. I think our, our community now has a sense of who we are as a group. Um, you know, and uh, and what we're all about and what we're trying to do in building not only great hockey players, but great young men as well. 
um, the, these young men know the first day that they step in here that I was born and raised in, the, in this city, and uh, and there's a, resp- a sense of responsibility uh, to giving back. So uh, all that in turn leads to what uh, you know, just a, the, the the relationship with the city, um, and then the honest product is continuing to improve. Uh, we took a, a good step forward this year. I don't think we're ever satisfied. Obviously, we, we uh, you know, getting a chance to play in the playoffs, I think, is going to help, uh, not just with attendance, but uh, with 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 the city falling in love with this team. I mean, we want we want to build a sustainable team where you know the Hamilton Bulldogs are the junior hockey team in Hamilton forever, and we inspire young kids and we're great in the community. There's a certain, certainly a number of different pillars that we have within our organization that we want to invest in class and. And uh, so far, we're showing great progress. Um, there's certainly a lot of work that still needs to be done, but I think we're on the right track. Now, it didn't come into play this year. Um, you would have run into an interesting situation if you had finished with home ice advantage because the Around the Bay race is on this weekend. So you would have had home ice advantage but not really been able to use it. That's fine. That that doesn't really matter this year. But have you given any thought to, is there a way around this for future years? Now that we have a sort of a heads up and we realize, hey, this could have happened. Is there any way to get around that in the future? Or is that always going to be an issue? Uh, well, certainly it does land on the opening weekend of uh, of our OHL playoffs. I, I, I got to tell you that I don't know for sure if uh, every year it's it's on the same weekend from an OHL perspective. I, I think that it is. Um, is there ways around it? Certainly, we'll we'll look for any type of alternative. Uh, you know, because we we do expect to have home ice. That's a goal of ours as we go into every season. So, um, you know, it's a challenge with our building. We know that. I mean, it's it's something that uh, you know we try and deal with uh, in the best way possible. But uh, certainly. Um, it didn't affect us this year. Uh, it might have mentally, you know. I think the players all knew that we weren't uh, going to going to be in our building. Uh, was our play affected uh, by it? Uh, you know, down the stretch a little bit. Uh, that's tough to, to answer, but uh, certainly, we'll. You know, now that we've been here, we know this. Um, is there an alternative? We'll, we'll have to wait and find out. But certainly, we'll we'll look for the uh, the best possible solution to it. Last topic I want to get to. Uh, as general manager and president, you have a lot of balls in the air all the time. But in addition to the playoffs, and I know that's where your attention is, we're not far away, a couple of weeks maybe, from the OHL draft, the priority selection. So you've got to, I mean, are you deep up to your elbows in that as well? Do you already have an idea? You have the 10th pick. Do you already have an idea of who's going to be your guy? Uh, we have a grouping of players that may be there. It's very difficult to predict the, sure. the draft at this point just because we don't know what's going to happen kind of at the top of the board. It was a little easier last year. You know, we had to figure out what two teams were doing and then and then get our guy in Connor Roberts, who we were uh, very excited to get. So More along uh, the lines, though, do you have a list up on the wall of the top ten players so you'll get one of those? Do you have it that far along that you would say we're getting one of those guys or is there still work to do there? Uh, we we go through mock drafts often, uh, you know, and you you kind of hear some of the stuff that's going on. We've been working very hard. We got a great scouting staff that certainly puts in a ton of work. Um, we you know the OHL Cup was kind of the, the the last touch of our scouting, and uh, we have reports, we have lists, we have lists of uh, you know uh, in in all different areas of our team. So um, yeah, we've done mock drafts. We're just we're, we're prepared. Let's put it that way. There's a ton of work that goes into it. Our scouts travel all over uh, Ontario, and, and you know, through very difficult conditions, sometimes to be able to get reports and get a look at these players and 
Uh, we feel very prepared for this upcoming draft, and we have, you know, a significant amount of draft picks. We have five of them within the top hundred, and uh, we're looking to, uh, you know, to to make good on all of them. There is uh, a kid who plays for a team called the Vaughn Kings, who actually shares your last name, uh, your son Nathan. I'm wondering if any scout comes to the meetings and doesn't say that he should be your first draft pick, is that scout immediately fired? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm looking for scouts. All of them, you know, I've, I've, I've fired them all. Uh, yeah, no, it's been it's it's been a very enjoyable for year for me on the scouting side because. Uh, uh, I've been able to, uh, you know, watch a lot of my son's games, and uh, um, that's that's been unique. And if anybody's ever wondering, uh, Nathan Steos will not be drafted to the Hamilton Bulldogs. I was going to ask you that. He, Why he, not? Yeah. Um, if you guys came up on the spot on the draft board where he legitimately was yeah. in that area, so it wasn't you taking a huge reach just to get him. If he was there and it was his spot and it was your pick, you wouldn't take him? No. And here's here are the reasons why. First of all, uh, the player is you know he's been around hockey for a long time, is uh, uh, mature enough to know that uh, it's a unique situation. Uh, I he he doesn't want to be in the situation uh, with his dad being the boss. Um, you know I don't think uh, the way that I look at it is I manage twenty uh, twenty three young men, um, and to make it a situation where there's a player there that's. Uh, uh, you know, his dad is, is making the decisions. Uh, I don't think that's fair for the player. I don't think it's fair for my players. Um, and uh, I don't think it's fair for coach. Coach has coached uh, his boss's son at one point. It didn't work out so well for him. <laughs> what, what you're really saying is you actually watched what happened in Flint last year and you said, forget <laughs> that. No way we're going down that road. <laughs> no, no it, you know what, I feel like... I, I, John know, Gruden was there. He doesn't need this twice in a row. Yeah, that's right. I think I'm much more rational than that uh, that situation, uh, but we don't need to touch on that. But it's, certainly, it's very unique, Scott. Um, you know, I wasn't prepared to answer this question on this call, but certainly, we, you know, I'm, I'm I'm the president general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs, and I have to make the right decisions. Is the player certainly he's he's in our wheelhouse as far as our ratings, um, but if the player is good enough, he can go somewhere else and and do well as well, um, and that's that's what we're. We're sticking to. I think a lot of teams are surprised because that that we wouldn't take the player, um, but uh, certainly you know because there has been precedent where there has been situations that have worked okay. There's been a lot uh, of that it. situation. Yeah, but it's it's not for us. It's not for the, it's not for the player. Uh, it's not for the the uh, the dad, and it's not for the manager. So uh, yeah, that's that that'll be it. Uh, you guys play on the road Friday and Sunday, correct? Yeah, uh, we do, yeah. Friday and Sunday, and then you're back home Tuesday and Thursday, correct? Yes. So people can get tickets if they want to go down, if they want to see you guys play. Again, it's the first It's the first playoff hockey game at First Ontario Centre. Uh, geez, uh, you, you were, were you still, what, what year did you retire from the NHL? I was still playing. I was. There, uh, it's been a while. Yeah, 2012, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for reminding me. No. Uh, yeah. But that's uh, how long it's been since we've had playoff hockey here, so it's a good thing. It's uh, it's time. Exactly. Yeah, and you know what? It's, it's, been, it's, it's, it's been such an enjoyable year for me. Uh, our fans, like, you know, and the fans that come to the game, uh, don't, be, don't be fooled. We have some of the greatest fans in the Ontario Hockey League, passionate, loud, and uh, we want to fill the building. I mean, we, we have... Two games at home. They're going to be crucial games. Uh, you know, we're going up up against a tough opponent, and uh, we we feel like it's going to be a really entertaining series. And we need we need the support. We want everybody to come down to the building. We're going to have a great time. 
Steve Stales, good luck this week uh, over the next, well, hopefully more than a week. Let's put it that way. But uh, good luck for as long as it lasts. We're, uh, we're cheering for you. Good luck. Yeah, thank you very much, Scott. Have that is uh, President and General Manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. It, you know, it, it, it's always good. We, we say we want the Ticats to do well. We do. It's good for the city when a team does well and when people are feeling good about their team. You'd like the Bulldogs to do well. You'd like all the teams to do well. It's, do you remember, I mean, if you were down there, did you ever, did, Luke, I know you went. How many games did you go in the 2007 Calder Cup run? How many games did you actually get to? A bunch? Uh, I think actually the answer for that year is zero, but the 03 run. The 03 was run, that, that was the round. one. You know what? It is one of those things that you, I remember writing, or I was at the paper and the day that they were, the days that they were leading up to the final game for that 2003 season when they sold out first Ontario Center, they played Houston. And as people started hearing that more and more tickets were being sold, that picked up speed and picked up speed. And you know what? Despite the fact that it was one of the worst hockey games that a Hamilton Bulldogs team ever played, they lost 3 nothing. They were awful. They were totally horrible, which was a shame. It was one of the great environments and the great atmospheres at a game until about two-thirds of the way through the third period when everyone realized that they weren't actually going to win. But until then, it was fantastic. And the reason was because... Everybody was excited about even people who had never been to a Bulldogs game before who suddenly went. It wasn't about the fact that it was the Bulldogs or the AHL or it was just that you're in this building full of people and there's a lot of excitement and there's something on the line and it was fun. Also, they gave us all thundersticks. Well, that, yeah, but that was all part of the atmosphere and the environment. And you no, get into was, a place. It was the most wonderful environment I've ever been a part of as a sports fan. Let's but hope that they can replicate they that. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I'll tell you a story about this, and we got to go to break. They had, on the catwalk, way above the arena, they had all kinds of, I think there were four or five, confetti cannons that were loaded and locked and loaded and ready to fire off. And as soon as the Bulldogs won, they were going to shoot them off. Now, I think, if I recall correctly, and I stand to be corrected on this, that at one point they actually changed their plan midway through the third period and said, if we just score a goal, we'll fire them off, at least the ones that aren't going to go towards the ice. But they never got to shoot off any I mean, of the cannons, and it was sad when they had to disassemble them <laughs> then with the with the confetti still in them. I, I was only 12 years old at the time, but I think I would have realized how stupid that was. Hey, uh, we scored. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it still would have been better than a Because what if you shutout. score a second time, and then suddenly the no, game so is saying, closed, you only show and a couple. you don't have a confetti cannon. Well, then you just throw confetti off the railing. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.